From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers in the spoken word five minutes and 650 words at a time. On today's show, we present three stories that relate to the Jewish experience from writers Marilyn Ogus Katz, Lynn Edelson, and David Masello. My cousin Harvey only calls when there's a death in the family. He's the custodian of our cemetery plot and must ask them to open the grave as though beneath the deceptive lid of grass an empty space lies waiting. Passover was different. Winter was finally over, the trees were budding, and there was the promise of brisket. During the question-and-answer period at a book signing in New York University's Casa Italiana, an elderly, elegant woman at a table in the room asked the author, when was it exactly your grandmother and great-grandmother reached Auschwitz? And on today's Between the Lines segment, writer Anne Levin describes an experience common to many writers, the dread and self-doubt that accompanies grappling with the blank page. It's always been a struggle for me wondering if the muse would show up and have anything interesting to say. That's all just ahead on Read 650. Great storytelling runs deep in the Jewish DNA, from Sholem Alechem to Philip Roth and Nora Ephron. And that spirit is alive in the tales we selected for today's show from an event we planned called Jew-ish, with a hyphen, True Stories of Love, Latkes and L'chaim. We begin today with a poignant and beautifully crafted story from writer Marilyn Ogus Katz, whom we'd previously featured twice on our Read 650 stage. Sadly, Marilyn died before we could record her submission, which is performed here by a fellow writer and actress. This is Margarita Meyendorf reading Marilyn's story, A Few Small Stones. My cousin Harvey only calls when there's a death in the family. He's the custodian of our cemetery plot and must ask them to open the grave as though beneath the deceptive lid of grass an empty space lies waiting. Cousin Florence has died of a heart attack. Once again, Harvey suggests we drive out together. We haven't seen each other since the last funeral. But over 60 years ago, I babysat him as he toddled about blonde ringlets at his neck. Each mile on the Long Island Expressway takes us back to the past we share. We grew up on that cemetery. Some families take pride in a homestead or a compound on a river. Ours struggled to preserve a patch of burial ground. In the 1930s, our grandmother and her five younger siblings, immigrants from Poland, bought a plot with 60 graves. They insisted we Jews own a piece of land from which no one could turn us away. The family met on the first Saturday of each month in someone's home. 
Even as a child, I understood the difference between an uncle and a great uncle, a second cousin and a first cousin once removed. Bubby, my grandmother, held forth, her gold watch swinging like a pendulum below her waist. A leader at the workman's circle, she could keep an agenda even in a room of boisterous brothers and sisters. Maintaining the cemetery plot was the first item of business, but the family also sent money to a sister in Poland, raised funds for the poor, planned the Hanukkah party and the annual picnic. Bubby embraced the democracy of her adopted country and encouraged debate, but she always got her way. We children would fall asleep, snuggling among the abandoned coats on the bed, awakening overheated and staggering into the night with imprints of coat buttons on our cheeks. When the great uncles and great aunts died, I visited our plot again and again as easy around the gravestones as on the swings at the state park where we went for our picnics. Harvey clutches the wheel and peers into the rain. I'm glad I brought my umbrella. His wife, Cynthia, died 11 years ago. My husband, Mac, 20. In the Jewish tradition, we will place small stones on their footstones today. What's with this strictly funeral relationship we have, I say? When I go, you'll have to introduce yourself and your children to mine. You were the best babysitter, Harvey says. Remember that New Year's when we leaned out the window and banged pans against the sill? But... He doesn't promise to call between deaths. We drive through the cemetery gates towards a dense skyline of monuments so unlike the lawns of our childhood. When we step into the downpour, I don't recognize anyone except the husband of the cousin who died. We are a small family above ground. The rabbi asks us to place a shovelful on the casket. The soil is drenched and heavy, the shovel hard to lift and turn. The thud and scatter of pebbles assaults the pine box again and again. When I bend to place the stone on my husband's grave, I long to laugh with him once more about these relatives who argued every month as they reached for roast chicken and potato cool about what shrubs to plant at the cemetery. Now, only Harvey and I remember the aunt who knits sweaters with armholes too tight to move, the great uncle who paid for my mother's piano lessons, the cousin who ground gefilte fish each Passover, or Bubby, who marched to demand the vote for women. Soon our family's cherished plot will fill 
with distant relatives who won't know or care about that once vibrant community of immigrants. And Harvey will pull away from my corner with my drenched old umbrella on the floor of his car. Marilyn Ogus Katz lived a life of adventure and joy. She taught in an educational opportunity program at the State University of New York College at Purchase, and then served for many years as Dean of Studies at Sarah Lawrence College. She left academia to write, and her collection of linked short stories, A Few Small Stones, about coming of age in an extended immigrant family in New York City during the 40s, was published in 2018. Essays on Wordsworth, the teaching of writing, Issues in higher education and the concerns of older women appeared in journals and anthologies and won some prizes. Marilyn once said, As a late bloomer, I have to believe, along with Grace Paley, in enormous changes at the last minute. Up next is writer Lynn Edelson. Some of Lynn's favorite recollections from her young life are tied not only to family holidays, but to the food her parents prepared, especially at Passover. This is Lynn Edelson, recorded at her home in New York's Putnam County, reading Brisket. On Yom Kippur, my father wore grass-stained khakis and an undershirt as he dragged a wheelbarrow around the yard. Walter, my mother pleaded, it's holiday. And go to temple, he said. What's for lunch? Passover was different. Even my father liked that one. Winter was finally over, the trees were budding, and there was the promise of brisket. He brought in the long folding table from the garage, set it up in the living room, and covered it with the damask tablecloth that my mother had ironed the night before. I carefully placed crystal goblets next to the gold-rimmed china plates and helped polish the wedding silver that was kept inside a velvet-lined wooden chest in the break room. My mother put a white cloth napkin to the left of each plate. The fork goes on top of the napkin, she told me, and the spoon goes next to the knife. The brisket simmered in a large Dutch oven on the stove. My father sliced the onions and scattered them around the slab of meat. He sprinkled Lipton's onion soup mix on top, as well as ketchup and Worcestershire sauce. As the hours went by, he took off the cover and inhaled deeply. Taste this, he said, as he placed a small piece of meat in my mouth. I didn't like brisket, but I love seeing him so happy. It's delicious, I lied. Years later, I married a boy who came with a Christmas tree. When our children were young, we celebrated Passover and Easter every spring. It was never about the liberation of the Jews, never about the resurrection of Jesus. It was always about the food. My husband loved ham and brisket. We need those little bow tie noodles for the kashavanishkas, he reminded me as we shopped. I tried to buy the kids Passover gifts that would rival Easter, but everyone knew that nothing could compete with the hand-dyed eggs 
and baskets filled with candy and toys. We hid the afikomen and gave a dollar to the child who found it and a dollar to the child who didn't. And it was fine, but it lacked the pizzazz of the ham's luxurious scent wafting through the house and the huge chocolate bunnies. As the kids got older, Easter eventually lost its shine. We still dyed the eggs, but the baskets became an afterthought and the candy often went untouched. And really, how much salty meat can one eat after the first two days? But brisket, brisket goes on forever. I wanna have a Seder, I told the kids a few years ago. Make a brisket. This gave them pause. With kosher varnish gifts, they asked? Of course, I said. And then, nah, I'm going to a concert. Nah, I'm gonna be out of town. Nah, you forgot to make sure we knew it mattered. Friends invited us to their seders, but neither one of us wanted to wait for hours while their family and kids stumbled through the Haggadah and four questions. And our boys weren't there, so what did it matter? It was not until the year that my husband's band happened to book a local gig on the first night of Passover. Can you make it? I asked our older son. Sure, he said. His girlfriend loved music and dancing. Do you think you guys can get there? I asked our younger son. Maybe, he said. We'll try. On that first night of Passover, my husband stood on a stage playing his bass while our boys and their girlfriends sat on stools around a table with a white cotton tablecloth swaying to the music. We ordered drinks, appetizers, and small dinner plates. The food wasn't especially good, but I gazed at the kids and smiled. It was a night that was different from all other nights, and the forks were placed neatly atop the napkins. Lynn Edelson has been writing memoir for the past 12 years, and she's currently at work on a collection of short stories. She's a frequent contributor to Read 650, and she's been selected as a cast member of the New York City Listen to Your Mother show. The mother of two grown sons, Lynn lives in the Hudson Valley with her husband and their two dogs, whom she says shed far too much. Our third story today comes from writer David Nacello, a New Yorker transplanted from Chicago who drinks deeply of his adopted city's cultural offerings, regularly attending art exhibits, music performances, and literary events. David's response to the call for stories with a Jewish theme prompted a memory of a book signing event he attended in Greenwich Village. This is David Nacello reading his story, The Woman in the Audience. During the question-and-answer period at a book signing in New York University's Casa Italiana, an elderly, elegant woman at a table in the room asked the author, when was it exactly your grandmother and great-grandmother reached Auschwitz? To say, her eyes roaming the room in a middle-distance gaze, that was two months after I arrived there. In saying this, a silver cuff modern, sculptural, slid along the woman's wrist, which she readjusted, as well as a sheer leopard-print scarf draped about her shoulders. They were killed the day they arrived, the author added. The woman who'd asked the question nodded with this news, 
knowing she'd not met the two women who arrived that day after their five-day transport from Fossoli, the infamous Italian holding facility from which Italian Jews were sent to Auschwitz. Maybe, as a fellow inmate, she'd remembered hearing in the distance the arrival of their train, perhaps spotting the two women as just another pair of figures on a marched walk to the lethal showers, likely never imagining she'd be referencing them decades hence in a comfortable university room in Manhattan. I don't think many of us believe there are such survivors still among us. People so engaged with life today, they appear at a book signing in Greenwich Village to learn more about a past in which they themselves had starring roles for which they hadn't auditioned. Who put on makeup, a tailored jacket, interesting jewelry, and find a seat in a room to listen to someone talk of murdered family. The author, an ebullient, gracious Italian-Jewish woman born in 1927, spoke about her grandmother and great-grandmother, quoting from eight letters her grandmother had smuggled out of Fossoli. Those two women, aged themselves at the time of their deaths, languished for weeks in a limbo of unremitting anxiety before their final transport the younger woman pleading in those missives to neighbors in Turin for basic sundries, a package of clothes, sugar, cookies, and canned food, she'd written in letter two. We have nothing, not even toiletries, writing paper and envelopes, soap, drinking glasses, cutlery. The room in which the presentation was held was so full I stood at the threshold and turned off the lights so a slideshow of images could be better seen. The author acknowledged my simplest of actions with a nod of thanks, and suddenly my wish to connect with, acknowledge those two women from the here and now, was realized. Black and white photos of mother and daughter in the 19 aughts and beyond projected onto the wall, holding the hands of children, wearing hats festooned with feathers, crossing a bridge in Padua, posed beneath a tree ringed by boys in sailor suits, family photographs betraying no hint of a future even Dante couldn't have conjured. I don't think it's possible for language to be more effective than that expressed in those translated letters. We are weak. It's so hot. I'm counting on you, on everyone, especially as regards Mama, reads letter 7. She is my greatest worry. If I were on my own, I would be stronger and freer. There would be no later on, as we learned. And yet... There is a later on. For here we were, are, learning about the lives of two women, not just their last days, but earlier, happier ones too, as well as the lives of survivors. The author, whose girlhood odyssey of escape began once Italian racial laws were enacted in 1938, and that of a woman in the audience, who had not escaped but was able to tell a roomful of strangers now a fact about her entire life, uttered as a simple aside about a trip 
she was once forced to take. We applauded the presentation. Lights up. The woman from the audience, unknown yet famous, gathered herself and walked out on the 12th Street, repositioning her scarf against the autumn chill. She, a figure from history, rejoining the life of our city. David Masella began his career as a non-fiction book editor at Simon & Schuster, then went on to hold senior edit positions at many magazines, including Travel and Leisure, Art and Antiques, and Town and Country. He's currently executive editor of Milieu, a magazine about design and architecture. He's a widely published essayist, poet, and playwright, with work appearing in the New York Times, Best American Essays, and numerous literary and art magazines. The author of two books about art and architecture, he lives and writes in New York City. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team is Stephen Lewis, David Masello, Lisa Donati-Mayer, and Rhonda Zangwill. Sarah Caldwell is our chief technology officer and troubleshooter. Fran Tuno is our announcer, and our show was produced by Jim Russick. If you like this show and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on episodes you may have missed, like birthdays and the first time. And you'll get new episodes delivered directly to you, along with a generous portion of Lynn Edelson's homemade brisket. Coming up right after the break, it's writer Anne Levin with Between the Lines. Stay with us. Support for Read 650 comes from City Winery, a fully functioning urban winery offering intimate concerts, food and wine classes, private events, and fine dining. City Winery strives to deliver the highest end combined culinary and cultural experiences to guests passionate about sharing wine, music, and good food. City Winery brings the wine country experience to the city. View the complete event schedule at citywinery.com. Anne Levin has been writing and editing and writing some more for the whole of her adult life. Like most writers, if we're being honest, Anne sometimes freezes up when confronted with a blank page or a blank screen, wondering just how to begin, or if what she wants to express will be worthy of her efforts or of a reader's time. Her perspective has changed over the course of the many, many thousands of words that she's written. For this week's Between the Lines segment, we present Anne Levin reading her essay, The Blank Page. Earlier this year, a friend of mine sent around a poem in email about what it's like to confront the blank page. For Steve, looking back over a long, successful career as a writer, it wasn't terrifying at all. On the contrary, he compared it to an undiscovered room or virgin forest where all manner of secrets might be revealed. I told him I found that amazing because from the very beginning, it's always been a struggle for me, wondering if the muse would show up and have anything interesting to say. Like a lot of writers, Steve has written a lot about the process of writing itself. In one essay, he called it a nagging hunger to enter into the unknown and give it form and language. In a poem last December, 
He described it as putting words up on a screen and taking them down, replacing them with other words. In another essay titled The 15-Minute Novel, he calculated how long it would take to produce a first draft by writing 15 minutes a day, just 40 weeks, not counting the rewrites. Recently, we were on a program together organized by Read 650, where he's a senior editor and literary ombudsman. He read an essay about how his decision to become a writer was deeply disappointing to his father, who ran a wholesale school supplies business. I recognize the type, hardworking, upwardly aspirational, even though I never met him. But I got the feeling after listening to Steve's essay that all his dad's harangues about the vital importance of flashcards and pencils were in some way responsible for Steve's success. My dad sold furniture. And even though I was never expected to go into the family business, I like to think that I inherited his devotion to work, which kept him up late many nights going over accounts. Sometimes we writers delude ourselves into thinking that what we do is a calling, or a mission, or a destiny. But all those exalted notions are just going to get you into trouble. At the end of the day, writing is a trade, an occupation, a profession like any other. As another writer friend of mine once told me, you don't have to believe what you wrote is good. You just have to believe it's your job to put it out in the world. Anne Levin is a writer and editor who worked for many years as a journalist, including as national news editor at the Associated Press. She's also been a reporter for the San Diego Tribune and several other newspapers, and she continues to review books for the AP and for USA Today. She's at work on a memoir, and you can learn more at annelevinwriter.com. Do you have some thoughts to share on writing and the writing life? Well, share them with us in your own Between the Lines story. We want to hear your perspective on writing, what it means, why you do it, how you do it, or even how you avoid doing it. For details, click the Submissions tab on our website, read650.org. While you're there, scan the submission calls for upcoming live shows at City Winery's flagship location in Manhattan to see if one of them inspires you to dust off or polish up something that's been languishing in your journal. That just about wraps up this week's show, and I'm pleased to acknowledge the talent and passion of late writer Marilyn Ogus-Katz. And I thank writer and actress Margarita Meyendorf for performing Marilyn's work. For sharing their talents, I also thank writers Lynn Edelson, David Vassello, and Anne Levin. Incidentally, if you've written a review of our show on Apple Podcasts, I sincerely thank you. But if you haven't, now is a great time to do so. It really does help us, and your review helps other people find the show. Thank you so much for listening today and for helping to spread the word about the spoken word. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.